0: Hi, if you're just finding this podcast, I'm Dylan Sharp, and I've been a little bit obsessed with the coming metaverse for the last decade. Today, I have a guest called Joshua Schoen, who is representing one of the oldest names in a very new industry, Bancor. Uh, welcome, Joshua. Thanks for having me. Thank you. And I, I do want to say that although the space works really, really fast, um, I must say that, you know, I posted a Twitter not even a couple of hours ago, and Immediately, Bancor was on it, and yeah, we are. So uh, I think that's a record yep. even for, for DeFi and crypto.
1: Yeah, we are, uh, we're pretty responsible. It also helps having uh, two children under the age of one keeping you up at all odd hours. So yeah, I, uh, I get pretty, pretty strange working times right now.
0: That's awesome. Um, okay, so before we get deep dive into the technical side of DeFi and all of that, uh, can you tell me a little bit about yourself and how you got to Bancor, and then uh, a little bit about Bancor and its history?
1: Well, there's, uh, there's two answers to that question of uh, who am I? There's uh, the one most people want, and I'll get to that in a second. But there's the one that I like to give, which is uh, I'm some guy from Michigan. Uh, I'm, I'm, that's, that's about as much as you need to know, really. It's like you can listen to me say things, and I can be informed, and I can help you kind of guide you in uh, what you're looking for. But ultimately, you can independently verify everything I'm going to say. Uh, it's not like, uh, you know, the the head of Marlboro cigarettes coming out and saying, you know, these, these aren't bad for you. They don't cause lung cancer. People don't have research labs. They can't independently verify in 1960. But everything that we're about to talk about, you can look up on chain, you can research and verify.
0: I I think that may be the most in code we trust answer I've ever gotten. And I think it's particularly appropriate for DeFi, you know, whereas we could argue that um, when it comes to NFTs and DAOs and things like that, where there is still a lot of founder error and human error, uh, it may not be as appropriate for people to be as anonymous or unknown. But when it comes to a decentralized exchange, that's probably the most appropriate answer uh, you could give.
1: Yeah, I, I really do like that idea. It's, uh, we could, we'll probably talk about Robin Hood a little bit later, but the, the whole core tenet of decentralized finance is that you don't have to trust somebody. It's trust, but verify, really. Uh, and then the second answer, which I think more people want, is uh, I, uh, my name is Joshua Schoen. I am a graduate in math, English, and I have certifications in education. Uh, I did uh, teaching uh, all math. I never got to teach English because if you have the ability to teach math and English, you're going to be teaching math. Uh, and I got into crypto because, uh, after I graduated college, I kind of wanted to, uh, to keep learning, uh, and crypto was, uh, very apparently this bottomless pit of information where you can just read and read and read and learn. And you never, never, you never really know enough. Like that's, that's like the number yeah. one thing that when I talked to, to Mark Richardson, the, the head of research, it's just like, we've been doing this full time for like, three years like reading two to five hours a day like six days a week looking at project after project and it's just like i'd never heard of crown capital games before because <laughs> there's just there's just too much information much you, you can't you can't keep up uh so i i got into to cryptocurrency as a mathematical interest learning about the avalanche consensus method um was a was a big uh, it was it's new research it's like a new problem like they solved this old math problem and I was like that's fascinating and then they turned it into a blockchain so I was a huge fan of Avalanche uh
0: let's let's I, take a moment to pause there actually because I think you know all of these kind of gems become really interesting topics for people uh yeah. you know let's take a minute to talk about Avalanche what did they actually solve um that has made them so unique
1: uh, They well, it's a it's a pretty math-heavy answer. Um, the the short of it is, is there was this very old information uh, compute uh, computer program problem, where if two people are sending information back and forth in a very specific constrained way, can you come to an agreement despite the constraints of your communication method? Right. And Avalanche solved that problem, and they solved it with something called gossiping, uh, where the more nodes that kind of have like this subgroup of agreement, and then it gets larger and larger until it overflows, and that's the consensus. It avalanches. It pushes everything else and takes it with it. And uh, is it's a very fascinating and novel method. And uh, Avalanche is using it, and Flare Networks, which is uh, the sister network to XRP, uh, is going to be coming out in like the next probably year. Uh, so, so if I understood correctly,
0: when, when there's a certain critical mass of communication, uh, then literally it sparks an avalanche uh, of consensus that allows uh, the communication to be verified. Is, is, is that yes. a fair way of putting that it? Is,
1: yeah, that is, that is a pretty, pretty accurate way to put it, yes.
0: Awesome. Okay, so you've, you got now into crypto and you're poking yep. your head around doing a lot of deep research. Um, how did you get to Bancor?
1: Uh, I looked around for all of these uh, these money-related problems because it's like, hey, if you if you think inflation's a problem, Bitcoin proposes itself to be a solution. If you don't think inflation's a problem, we probably don't get along. But like, bank uh, Bitcoin is theoretically a solution to that problem, uh, amongst other things. Uh, so looking around the world for for money problems, you find you start looking at people who propose themselves as having answers and DeFi was one of those big answers it's like so bank of america in particular uh they are as best i can tell as best anyone can tell absolutely not racist as an institution they are totally available to the public pretty much anybody can use them uh but they are different from decentralized finance like bancor because while bancor also is a progressive institution that doesn't make any kind of refutation based on anyone's skin color, race, gender identity like that. Bancor is interesting because, and DeFi is interesting because, they are incapable of having such discriminatory practices. They are, they are fundamentally unable to engage in that kind of uh, discrimination. And so people who have banking problems all over the world, right? Like uh, El Salvador, before they, before they adopted Bitcoin, it was like 40% of their citizens had bank accounts and the rest of them just operated in cash or gold sometimes. Uh, and now that they've started to adopt Bitcoin, uh, it's like 85% of them was like the last thing that I saw uh, Bukele tweet out about it was like, hey, here's a study that says 85% of our citizens are now having digital wallets, while still only about 50% have actual bank accounts. So DeFi is this solution to a problem of fairness and money and liquidity.
0: Yeah, and, and I, I think, of- you know, there, there was, there's always been a, a lot of distrust with traditional banking, and, and often yeah. rightfully so. Um, Because, you know, banks have for centuries now used, um, you know, the reserve method of um, uh, um, what's what's the exact term where they only have to fractional reserve banking, thank you fractional reserve banking where, in theory, if there's a run on the bank, uh, they don't have enough money to pay people out. And most of these people living in, you know, third world or developing countries uh, remember that happening in their lifetime, and so they, you know, yeah. the mattress seems a lot safer. Um, and then over the years, as we started to try and protect society from terrorism and bad actors and implemented KYC, we have actually priced out. Uh, a lot of potential people wanted to open accounts because they don't necessarily have a stable address or they don't necessarily yeah. have a mobile phone or a consistent mobile phone or they share it with someone uh, or they don't necessarily have a formal mailing address. And um, these are the people that we most want to kind of help and they cannot open an account.
1: Yeah, it's it's absolutely tragic and cryptocurrency seeks to solve a lot of those problems. Uh But for me, how I uh, came to Bankware specifically, I was, I was looking at these kind of problems and I was like, okay, what are valid solutions? And you've got like uh, cryptographic banking, you've got yield farming, yield farming was like this super high. No, we'll come back to that. Yeah. And it was like, okay, I want to, I would like to make 150% APY with you. Uh, This seems like a scam. And so let's, what are the actual problems? What am I really doing under the hood? And it turns out that with yield farming, it's not a passive income strategy. We'll talk more about what it is later, yeah. but uh, it's a, it's a trading strategy where effectively you go short on two assets and they pay you for it. Uh, and it was like, that's, that's a really positive way. And I'd made all this money and I'd ended up like, I guess, retiring from teaching, uh, you know, three years after getting my degree uh, because of cryptocurrency and like my success uh, with that. And, Then I had migrated to Bancor and started using their protocol because uh, anytime I would make like a successful trade or or make some money, I would be like, where's a good place to put this? Where's a safe place to put this? Let me put it in Bancor. And I just kind of kept doing that until like 65% of my portfolio was just making me 30 to 55% a year with with no downside as far as I can tell. And uh, and we can talk more about, you know, if there oh, are downsides, sure. but I definitely think that Bancor is the absolute best place to hold coins long term, like better than your own wallet. Uh, yeah, so, so that's how I got to Bancor specifically, they ended up being uh, what I thought was the logical choice and uh, I ended up going into the community calls and being able to talk to you know Mark and members of the development team. And I liked what they had to say. I was like, man, these are some of the, see, like, after getting out of academia and math departments, it's like, these are some of the smartest people I think I've ever talked to. And uh, yeah, it just ended up being a logical conclusion repeatedly.
0: Now, what is your official position over there? I'm a marketing consultant. Marketing consultant, super. Okay, so let's take a bit of a history walk through DeFi. So basically, crypto coins come out, we get our major players, Bitcoin, Ethereum, and so on. And then came the centralized exchanges. And obviously, these were expedient and easy onboarding ramps for people who wanted to bring in money into crypto. But they had a very dark side to them in that they uh, essentially went against what crypto was all about decentralization. Because here we were putting our decentralized coins back in centralized entities, um, and even the good actors, right, Um, some of them had problems, some of them could be subject to attack, Um, and then on top of it, over time, they've all started requiring uh, KYCs, which again, just puts them back in the same premise as a traditional bank, uh, cutting people out, and so after that, you start to see a mass adoption of what I would call uh, decentralized wallets, uh, meta masks, and so on. Um, And then the next obvious step was decentralized finance. But before we get into specifically uh, Banco and how it solved that initial problem, um, I I think we best talk about um, how uh, traditionally people are able to buy things like stocks or currency, right? Would you like to talk a little bit about market makers?
1: Well, uh, maybe in the context of crypto a little bit more, But generally, the the way that market makers work is that there are buy and sell orders, and there is a centralized authority with that, uh, with those things in mind. You trust them that they are going to execute your buy order or sell order, and they're going to match you up versus people that they think are appropriate uh, within a predefined range or at a specific price, or maybe they'll hold your assets for you. The point of this is that the centralized authority – let's use Robinhood as an example because I'm not a fan – uh, the centralized authority is the one who controls that asset for you. And you have to just put your trust in them that they, one, are going to act in your in your best interest, and two, that they are actually going to do with it what you want. Uh, and with the whole GameStop stock debacle uh, with Robinhood, I think it's pretty apparent that when people – are going to make money at the expense of these centralized authorities they will for lack of a better term just completely cheat the system just just totally cheat the system just break every rule because breaking the rules are are more financially sound than following them and losing all of that money uh and i think i think that's a pretty good segue to talk about like specifically the history of Bancor. if that's oh please Yeah. So Bancor launched in June of 2017. It was the first ever DeFi protocol and the inventor of automated market makers. Uh, And since then, DeFi has absolutely just exploded into, I want to say it's like $500 billion uh, TVL across numerous blockchains. Uh, So so let's
0: let's really break it down there because I know some of my listeners are coming from traditional finance. So when we say DeFi, we mean decentralized finance. Yes. And what did Bancor come to solve? What, what was its original kind of uh, liquidity pool solving uh, that hadn't been done before?
1: So rather than having specific buy orders matched with specific sell orders through some centralized authority, uh, what, we, what we invented at Bancor was this idea of a liquidity pool where a person could put one asset, say Ethereum, versus another asset that they also owned, say Bancor network token, And people could use that liquidity to buy and sell according to an algorithm. And you were essentially selling, uh, you were giving the opportunity for both assets to be bought and sold from you at the same time. And what's neat about this is that whenever the assets are bought and sold, there is a small fee on the pool that's also predetermined. And the person who provided that liquidity is getting a cut of that fee. And if they owned 100% of the pool, they'd get 100% of the fee. So in that sense, the users are able to kind of play this role collaboratively of the centralized authority. They now have the liquidity. The liquidity is in the hands of, one, the people who provided it, two, the fees go directly to them, and three, the ability of the market to see and actually fairly trade these things is like the, these core tenets of DeFi,
0: Super. No, no, that's great. Um, and um, I, I think we can bring up yield farming now as well. Okay. Um, as I understood it, um, as DeFi blew up, you know, we talk about DeFi summer and so on. I mean, DeFi has, I, I, you probably have the numbers that I don't, but I mean, DeFi has insanely blown up in the last kind of four yeah. years uh, to it's numbers. That, sorry?
1: It's almost immeasurable. It's just so yeah. massive. Yeah.
0: We're we talking billions, uh, billions hundred, upon billions. Yeah. Hundred, hundreds of billions. Yes. Hundreds of billions, right. Um, and a number of big players have entered the space Bancor, Uniswap, Pancake PancakeSwap, Balancer, Curve, um, all trying to offer uh, slightly different forms of these liquidity pools to solve different problems, which we'll get to. But in addition to that, um, there came a great concept called Yield Farm whereby people who want to incentivize, I would call them investors into a specific pairing into a specific liquidity pool uh, were able to be rewarded uh, for doing so. And I think you framed it very well. How how did you understand uh, yield farming not being a scam as you said it?
1: Yeah, so what uh, yield farming is, is when you take your two assets, let's say again, Bancor and Ethereum, and you stake them against each other in a liquidity pool so people can use your capital to make trades, uh, why would you use Bancor instead of, say, Uniswap or Balancer or some other SushiSwap? Uh, and it turns out that like one of the ways that you can incentivize users to move their capital is to simply mint your own brand new token. Uh, so let's say that I am, uh, I'm Curve, uh, Curve Finance, and they want us to bring up, uh, bring a whole bunch of capital to them, but it might not be the most profitable, or it might not be apparent that it's the most profitable. What Curve can do is they can mint their own token, the CRV token, and if you put your capital with Curve, they will simply give you the fees that you've earned fairly, and they'll pay you Curve tokens. They'll just give them to you. And because they're able to mint these tokens, according to some sort of predefined strategy, and there's, there's other things involved with it as well, but because they're able to give you these tokens in a predefined strategy, and it's all known and fair, people find value in the curve tokens, which means you can sell them to increase your APY, to increase your annual yield. And this allows protocols essentially to uh, print their own money for marketing. Like, it's a marketing fee expense. Like, I want you to bring your money over to me, and I am going to make up a new currency with a new use case, and I'm going to give it to you uh, for for providing this capital. And the reason this happened is because the decentralized finance space, the DeFi space, was unbelievably competitive, just just hyper-competitive with all sorts of different products, and it's like giving them what was fair wasn't enough. It was like, no, we can't just give you what, what your, your stuff is worth. We're going to give you more than that. And then people look at that and it's like, no, we'll pay you even better. And there's this really uh, fine line between incentivizing users through uh, these rewards called liquidity mining, where you provide liquidity and the protocol pays you for that liquidity. Um, there's a very fine line between incentivizing users for rewards and your protocol ending up having kind of a Ponzi-nomics where they are relying on new capital constantly to infuse it because the rate of inflation on these tokens that you're paying people with are so huge. Specifically, Time Wonderland, which was an Olympus DAO fork recently went under, uh, and the APR that they that they offered was eighty thousand uh, percent, which which is not sustainable. Uh, but what is the difference between you know eighty thousand percent? that is clearly not sustainable and say somewhere like Trader Joe, where they offer 150% on many pairs. It's like, well, obviously there's the the actual percentage difference, 79,850%, but they're still printing tokens to just give to users. And is there a fine line there that we need to walk? And at Bancor, uh, one of the, one of the absolute best uh, selling points that I have for Bancor as a protocol, is that over the last four or five years, we have been doing these liquidity mining rewards at a a rate that is not caused to have major damage to the price action of the BNT token. In fact, over the last year, there have been many phases where Bancor has actually been net deflationary, where we are actually burning more tokens than we're printing. Uh, And this this has been really great for the protocol's health and I think a lot of places want to incentivize new users with essentially uh, fireworks, their fireworks. They're big and they're flashy and they generate all this stuff. Like Time Wonderland was huge for just like the couple of months that it existed. It, it attracted like, I think $700 million um, in like 30 days. And then it just collapsed. It just collapsed suddenly because it couldn't sustain its own economic model. So, right. yeah, there's, there's, again, crypto yeah. is this Yeah, and, 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 and I answers.
0: think, you know, I think, look, you know, it's, it's, it's great that you're talking from a purely a coin point of view, right? Like these DeFi coin protocols. Um, I've been, you know, I, I come from private banking. Um, yep. And so I'm really excited, you know, when I put on my banking hats, be it an investment bank or private banker, to uh, look at, Uh, coins as having new opportunities for for, um, dividends, for voting protocols, uh, for making governance much cleaner. And so, you know, suddenly I've, you know, I've been watching a number of DAOs. I I think Illuvium is a good example, uh, whereby their Illuvium coin is the governance DAO coin. And essentially they are using their yield farming rewards the staking rewards as a way of paying a dividend in a way right they've they've got finite supplies of coins they've got you know net burning mechanisms and so seeing these. uh, Two groups kind of you know the the coin mechanism, as you say, the decentralized exchange mechanism trying to not over incentivize or do ponds and the the games or protocols that have underlying assets and are trying to now, how do we get back the rewards, right? Like there's genuine rewards, right? Let's take a fund, for example, where they're actually actively earning an income. How do we distribute that fairly back to the people that have stood with us from the beginning, et cetera. Uh, And so watching that whole space develop uh, into a more stable space and not just the, the early Ponzi groups, uh, is, is quite fascinating. But yes, you know, look, we always say do your own research. If it sounds too good to be true, it may not be, but you better do your research.
1: Yeah. And I, th- I think that's a really good segue into uh, what I would consider to be the, the second era of cryptocurrency. First, you had things like Bitcoin and Ethereum. Uh, and those kind of were like or the third phase of cryptocurrency, Bitcoin and Ethereum, Bitcoin being just a currency to transact back and forth, Ethereum being smart, contractable, programmable things, these complicated protocols. And then the third phase of crypto, in my opinion, is the rise of the utility token, uh, where all of a sudden these coins, they are not meant to be currencies. Like calling bank or network token, a uh, cryptocurrency is is correct, but it's really not meant to be something that you necessarily buy a cup of coffee with. Same thing with Chainlink. Chainlink isn't really meant to be buying a cup of coffee with. Chainlink is a product. The Graph, GRT, is a product. Bancor is a product. The Chainlink oracles, they offer decentralized price data. Like you don't want to trust Robinhood, for example, to tell you what the price of GameStop is when it's about to go through the roof and and they have shorts. So you need some sort of decentralized oracle who will fairly tell you what the price is or they will be slashed heavily for lying and those slashings will be redistributed to the people they cheated. The graph is is a utility token. It is the ability to have decentralized price history and indexing of data in a fair way. And bank or network token is a utility token. We are the insurance token. We protect people from impermanent loss. We allow them to stake on a protocol and help their communities, help these cryptocurrencies grow by having liquid markets. I think anybody who comes from a banking uh, industry kind of understands the importance of having liquid markets. If you don't have a liquid market for an asset, by definition, it almost ceases to be an asset. If it can't be traded for anything, is it really fair to call it an asset? So having
0: having the extreme the extreme example that everyone knows and was actually a rug pull, but it still proves the point so well. And it is Squid Games, right? They literally locked the external mechanism, and so money could only come in and money could not leave. And then it really didn't matter how much you know that other people are willing to pay for your squid. If there was no liquidity provider, you couldn't move it for it.
1: Yeah, there's, right. there's no market for it. You're, you're a billionaire on paper, but you can't sell because the protocol literally doesn't let you. Yeah. So utility tokens, I think, are definitely the future of crypto. Uh, and Bancor provides in, in permanent loss protection and insurance against assets. And that's that's what it does. It serves a specific... So I'm going
0: gonna, I'm gonna to stop you there to come back to Bancor's um, offerings. Let, let's go in this order. So we've now understood why we need a liquidity pool in DeFi, okay? Uh, Now, now comes the era of high Ethereum gas. And so, (laughs) right. So what, you know, after creating, I would say protocol number one, the, the, the archetype of the liquidity pool, what problems had a liquidity pool not solved that Bancor now wanted to try and solve?
1: So in Bancor version one, we made the original liquidity pool. We were the first people to do that. And we created this automated market maker, which used algorithmic curves to define trades so that they were fair and transparent.
0: Uh, Let's take a pause over there. How, how does a curve work, by the way? How does a balancer curve basically work?
1: The, the, you said balancer. Balancers are... Balancer is actually its own protocol, and it has right. a different one. Okay. Uh, because it, they are uh, multi asset baskets they they don't just have two assets they can have uh, three four five however many you want to you want to put in there according to some math. right and their math is is very interesting and, and kind of beautiful and i'm not super familiar with it so i don't want to talk about sure but i
0: mean data. in general how does a liquidity pool curve work
1: the, the way that it works is it's simple it's a rather simple supply and demand curve the idea here uh it is I'm a math teacher i want to start drawing it out yeah uh, It is essentially, uh, say there is $1,000 in USDT and one ETH, and they're paired versus each other. The way that the protocol views this is that by definition, these assets are 50 50. So that means that one ETH is, according to the pool, $1,000. Or let's use, let's use current market prices. Let's say $3,000. It's $3,000 of USDT on one side and one ETH on the other side. And that means the protocol thinks that one ETH is worth $3,000. Then a person comes along and they buy half an ETH. That would come out to $1,500. Now you've got $4,500 on one side of the pool and half an ETH on the other. The protocol again thinks by definition, those things are the same value. It now weights that half of an ETH to be worth $4,500. And so this is a very fair and transparent way of seeing the literal supply and demand of things. And if people start suddenly selling lots of ETH, you know, there's all of a sudden four ETH in the pool and only 500 bucks. That means that ETH is now worth less money according to this protocol. And this can be scaled up to be hundreds of millions, if not billions of dollars. Like right now, the deepest uh, pool on Bancor is either the ETH or the Bitcoin pool. There was like a big deposit of Bitcoin this morning, so I might be backwards on that. And it's like $270 million total, $135 million in BNT on one side, $135 million in Bitcoin on the other. And so this idea of supply and demand pushing the prices of these things back and forth, for a person who's making, you know, less than one million dollar trade, you aren't really going to experience any slippage. So Coinbase is a pretty good website. Coinbase Pro specifically, they have they have pretty they have rather competitive rates. They've been good to me, um, so I use them as an example. They charge a uh, point seven five percent maker taker fees, right? Uh, Bancor on its pools charges zero point two percent, and it's only one way. Uh, And the users who provide that liquidity get to keep all of the fees, or rather, they get to keep a a large majority of the fees, and some of it goes towards tokenomic stuff. Uh, Don't want to misrepresent anything. So there are uh, these incentives for people to use decentralized exchanges because cutting out the middleman, replacing the middleman, Coinbase in this case, with a smart contract greatly reduces the friction from user to transaction. It makes it, it reduces the slippage is the technical term.
0: Right. We'll come back to it. Let's, so let's, let's take us on a little bit of a tangent over here. So, I, I mean, I took us on a bit of a tangent. Back, back to the core point. So what were the problems with this original liquidity pool solution uh, that okay. Bancor now wanted to solve?
1: Yes. The, the problem was impermanent loss. Impermanent loss is a complicated idea. Uh, and it is one of the reasons that it is uh, difficult to get into crypto is because it is not immediately apparent what impermanent loss is, and it is not immediately apparent how you are hurt by it. Essentially, when you provide two assets into a liquidity pool, you are going short on both assets. That means if one of the assets uh, decides to go parabolically positive and the other asset remains the same in price you will end up with more of the loser and less of the winner. That is, that is the shortest version of it.
0: Right, and um, it's called impermanent because as long as you haven't, in theory, sold any of the coins, uh, they really could rebalance their value at some point.
1: Yes, so it's called impermanent loss, which I think is a misnomer because if one token went parabolic, Uh, and the other token stayed the same in price, there would be this huge differentiation where you'd end up with more of the loser and less of the winner. But if the other token followed the same parabolic rise, they would both rebalance together and you would have no impermanent loss. But it turns out that in crypto, uh, assets are highly volatile and almost always you're going to end up with a lot of divergence. And when prices diverge, like one goes up and the other goes down, impermanent loss can get massive.
0: Yeah. And, and I, I think this is something that has to be spoken about much more now than before, because, you know, as crypto as an industry develops, you're starting to see that price correlations have stopped being completely the same. It used to be, I mean, you know, when we had our last bear market, Bitcoin, everything that happened to Bitcoin eventually happened to everything else. Right? And so essentially, if Bitcoin was going down, as long as Ethereum was going down with it, or Ethereum was going up with it, then you're pretty much staying within your balancer range. And the differentials, maybe a few percent, and most people who are earning these great uh, transaction fees are not really noticing their impermanent loss. Whereas yeah. now that we have some coins that are pretty much uncorrelated, right? You've got these gaming tokens that were doing completely different things to your core OG coins like Bitcoin and Ethereum suddenly people were noticing impermanent loss in a very big way, and all of those gains that they had made from transactions and yield farming uh, were being wiped out.
1: Yeah, it's um, it's not so much that they were being wiped out. It's again, this is one of the reasons it's hard to uh, talk about impermanent loss. Uh, there is a, uh, I- I'm, I can provide it to you at at some point. There is a pool sure. of assets on Uniswap, and it is the Axie Infinity ETH pool, right? Uh, and the person who made this pool, I think they provided, like, about $10,000 in liquidity at the time. They put $10,000 they – they had to sell half of it. Right, right, it was SLP,
0: right? It was SLP and Ethereum?
1: Uh, the AXS token. A- okay. Yeah, the AXS token and the ETH token. And they sold half of their AXS for ETH. Right. Because remember, in order to LP, you have to have both assets. And they made this liquidity pool for people to trade with. Uh, some some year and a half later, the value of that $10,000 investment was $260,000, which is to pretty much everybody I've ever talked to. 26x in a year and a half is a good good deal, uh, and people are super happy with it, and users are super happy with it. But it doesn't tell the whole story. Impermanent loss is the villain here. So, first off, the fees earned on that pool were $60,000 on a $10,000 investment. So 60 grand was earned in fees on this pool. And the pool's, the actual token value went from being worth $10,000 to being worth $200,000. So 200,000 plus 60,000 is the 260,000 that the total investment is worth now. Uh, But there's a problem. If the person had simply never put their Axie Infinity tokens into the pool, their valuation would have been 1.3 million. Because that is the cost of impermanent loss. It was an 80% impermanent loss. Uh, it would have been like, yeah, 1.3 million. Uh, and that is because when Axie Infinity went from being worth, I think it was 7 cents when this person put in, and it went up to like, what was it? It was like 100 bucks at one point, right? Right. Um, when there's that parabolic rise, the person ended up with 1 of their AXS tokens relative to when they started. So they, if they would have simply kept all of their Axie AXS tokens in their wallet, it would be worth the money that it is. But because they provided liquidity, they got wrecked by impermanent loss. $260,000 is a lot of money. A 26X in a year and a half is a, is a great deal. But the difference between $260,000 and $1.3 million is literally seven figures. Right. Uh, and people don't understand that risk. And when people who have sufficient capital, who have large sums of capital, who are coming from traditional banking, they do not want to expose themselves to this impermanent loss issue. And Bancor solves that. It just completely solves it.
0: So before we go into how we solve it, let's go. So we've, we've talked impermanent loss is one issue. There is slippage. Let's take a moment to talk about slippage. And also let's talk about gas fees. Okay. And then I think we've covered all the players and we can then see what Bancor solved.
1: Okay, so uh, slippage is uh, supply and demand. Earlier, we had this example of $3,000 versus one ETH, right? And I said, if you wanted to buy half of an ETH, well, it would cost $1,500. That's not actually quite the case. It's a little more complicated than that. What the protocol does is, is it will look at the smallest sliver of ETH that it can sell you and sell you that bit for 3000 And then the supply and demand has moved such that the remaining 0.9999 ETH is now $3,005. And then it will sell you the smallest next sliver. And it'll do this in one transaction. The slippage is a term to describe the difference between the starting supply-demand dynamics and the ending supply-demand dynamics after the sale. Uh, So if you have a pool with low liquidity, you're going to end up with a lot of slippage where you're overpaying because your purchase of like $1,000 dramatically affected the pool. So you need lots of liquidity. You need deep liquidity in order to make it so that you don't get hurt by slippage. Right now, if you go to trade on Bancor in the Bitcoin or the Link or the ETH or many of the pools, your slippage is going to be less than a tenth or less than a hundredth of a percent. Right, not it's not noticeable, market. yeah. Yeah, and that's for orders under a million dollars, right? If you start getting orders in like the 30 or $50 million range, which has happened before, uh, slippage starts to come around, slip, slippage starts to play like an effect of like somewhere between four and 8%. Wow. But again, okay. 50, $50 million is like a massive buy. Right. That's an appropriate market movement, 4% for $50 million, right? Right. So Uniswap, came up with this idea of concentrated liquidity where uh, users, instead of depositing assets in a um, a fair fashion, like we talked about 50-50, instead they deposit at 50-50, but in a specific price range. It's concentrated liquidity is a complicated thing. Uh, And what this would do is, is it would allow the pools to act as though they had substantially more liquidity than was actually in them. But this is, again, a massive problem because the more concentrated the liquidity is, the better the deal is for the trader, but the worse the deal is for the investor. The person who provided the liquidity is is paying the cost of that. It's coming out of their bottom line. They're getting wrecked even harder. So if you have 20x concentration on your liquidity, you essentially have 20x concentration on your impermanent loss. And so we did this research, this, the, this research paper, this massive research project uh, undertaken. It's not even fair for me to say we, Mark and the, the dev team did it. Uh, and we looked at Uniswap liquidity providers and it turns out that fully 53% of them were in the red relative to if they just held. Wow. 53, 53% of them were in the red relative to just holding. And That's horrifying. Like, yeah it's it's awful it's a nightmare like imagine like imagine that you put all this time and effort into looking into the markets and providing these trading pairs and paying the gas which we'll talk about and
0: and you're rendering a service you you are genuinely rendering an important service to the community we want you
1: in the red you come out having what if your whole strategy was literally worse than doing nothing (laughs)
0: like that's
1: that's the nightmare for for large investors for for traditional financial investors and Bancor solves that problem. And we'll talk about gas and then we'll talk
0: about sure. how Bancor does that. Sure. Okay, but- so the last play, and I think for this we have to stick to the Ethereum network. Staking and transaction fees have gone through the roof over the years. I mean, it's, it's going to be north of $50 to, to stake any amount of coins. Um, and then, of course, there's the transaction fees. Um, and, and, and you know, we talk about Ethereum transaction fees. They are the lowest. Any other ERP-20 token on the Ethereum network is gonna be even higher gas fees, right? Because it's interacting with a, a more complicated contract. Um, is that correct? You know, So if a Gala coin or Illuvium's coin, uh, I've noticed that their gas tends to be higher than if I just bought and sold Ethereum. Uh,
1: I'm not sure about the specifics of that mechanic. I- do know that actually transferring tokens from a to b on eth uh, should be the same for just a simple transfer like wallet to wallet but staking contracts are considerably more different uh even things like staking eth versus staking wrapped eth are wrapped considerably it. different as far as the code is concerned so it doesn't surprise me at all um with regard to eth gas fees uh, a lot of people think that this is uh, – I've heard people with sentiments of ETH gas fees are killing Ethereum or something like that, and uh, it simply isn't the case. Uh, ETH gas fees are a sign of the unbelievable success of Ethereum, and it is suffocating under the own weight of its, ex- of its success. Right. Um, ETH is so unbelievably successful that people are willing to pay $250 for a transaction. Right. Flat, not counting slippage, not counting fees, just, just flat. Like if you want to have the fastest transaction, like if you're one, a trading speed level transaction, you need to spend a lot of gas in order to get your transaction picked up by miners, because if you're actually dealing with sufficient capital, you will be uh, eligible to be hurt by front run attacks in which people outbid you in terms of gas change the pool on the same block that you wish to purchase in and then you end up getting a worse deal or rather the worst possible deal that you could get given your original parameters and then they immediately sell back and they make a profit and that whole idea is is one of the reasons that ethereum has so many gas fees is because it has so much in gas fees is because you've got bots front-running people You've got MEV problems. You've got the tremendous success of the network, like
0: and that NFTs. Sums. Now, now we have and NFTs. NFTs.
1: Yep, which are also their own uh, complicated uh, mechanism on chain that needs to be transacted, uh, recorded, transacted. And
0: yeah, what I keep these- a calendar of all the competitive NFT things minting so that I don't. I'm stupid enough to try and put through some of my transactions in. It's just. Yeah.
1: It's yeah. all, it's awful. Like you got to, the thing, to, a th- useful thing to know about uh, ETH gas fees is that each line of code that you need to write to the ledger uh, is charged its own gas fee. Right. And so the more complicated the transaction, say NFTs or say complicated staking contracts on Bancor or Uniswap or Curve uh, the more code needs to be run, the more expensive the gas fee. Uh, and and I think that's about all the major players. I'm yeah, yeah. About-
0: so I think, I think let me put it like this. Despite how awesome it is that Ethereum has succeeded so well, uh, the, the reality is that it still costs a fortune to do these transactions that we want to do and it is seriously hindering the ability of smaller players right because we spoke about them in the beginning we want mass adoption of crypto we want people who have been priced out of the traditional banking system to be able to use crypto and these fees you know i speak to a lot of people who are buying nfts for the first time and they say you know what's the minimum i should be coming in if i'm buying ethereum based nfts and i'm like look you're going to be wrecked by gas fees if you're not coming in with $1,000 or so because it's, it's just yeah. too large a percentage uh, of your initial investment. Um, and so we start to see, you know, people priced out uh, of this amazing technology. Uh, so, you know, Ethereum aside, because that's its own conversation, how Ethereum's hard forking and layer two and stuff like that, and we can come back to it a little bit at the end, but how, what did Banco decide needed to be done in order to solve as many of these problems as possible?
1: Uh, Well, with regard to gas fees uh, on Bancor, there's there's two major components. The first is is that users stake only one asset on Bancor. Um, And this requires a complicated contract because many things happen under the hood. And the second portion of it is, is that users have unique positions on Bancor. And so there's no way to put it, gas fees on bancor specifically are atrocious i I won't i won't uh sugarcoat that at all they are bad it's it sucks they're bad for everybody they're worse for us uh and that is because these contracts were designed when you know ETH gas fees were like maximum five bucks like five bucks was oh we need to really cut down the gas fees like i i long i yearn for the days of five dollar transaction fees uh, and the reason is because Bancor has very complicated contracts because insurance is a thing that we do uniquely, or rather, our kind of insurance is a thing we do uniquely.
0: Well, let, let's let's actually break down what Bancor is actually proposing to do right now. What what is Bancor's uh, kind of? Uh, because this is all very new, right? I mean, you know, there was this is literally just being revealed now. That's why you know we get onto this call. What is Bancor? Uh, trying to do to revolutionize liquidity pools and uh, risk and slippage um, and yield farming? You know, what is this kind of catch-all solution uh, that solves so many of these problems?
1: Well, the first problem that uh, is solved by Bancor version 3 is, in large part, gas. The code, the contracts were rewritten such that the uh, unique position element was removed and such that the actual contracts are considerably more lightweight. Our own internal estimates right now, I'm I'm pretty sure I can say this, our own internal estimates right now say that contracts on version three should be about 60% cheaper in terms of gas uh, for users to stake with. And that is something that the the dev team has worked very hard on. The second way that Bancor helps alleviate gas fees is auto compounding, right? Like in in traditional uh, yield farming, you get your rewards, and then you have to spend gas in order to convert half of those rewards into another token and then you have to spend gas again to put those two assets back into the liquidity pool so that you are compounding your earnings and on bancor that whole process costs nothing in version three
0: it costs so, nothing so in- how does yeah. version three actually work let's break it down for people because it's 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 we're we're basically re- revolutionizing this concept of needing two tokens right how does yeah. Bancor, I mean, you can explain it better, but I, as I understand it, Bancor looks more like an, an atom with a circulating system of different coins, right? It's a single pool of coins. Is that correct?
1: Um, it is. That is how version three is going to work. That's okay, let's talk things about things version things three. In yes. Uh, so in, in version three, I want to finish, finish my last talk. Oh, sure, sure. Uh, we are reducing the the gas costs in version three by allowing users by by making it so that users auto compound their rewards natively gaslessly feelessly and the way that works is is because in version three uh just like in version two you will only need to stake one asset if you were that guy who liquidity uh, provided liquidity with the Axie axs token and eth instead of needing to sell half of your Axie, so you'd have eth to pair it against you can just provide Axie. You can just provide AXS 100%. Bancor doesn't make you have a portfolio in any other way than you want to have it. You just put your tokens on Bancor. And the way this works is is whenever a user puts liquidity onto Bancor, that the protocol itself mints for you a corresponding amount of BNT to pair it against. Or if you are a person who owns BNT and you provide your BNT to the protocol, the protocol puts your BNT against someone else's asset. That is, that is the kind of revolutionary thing that we did uh, in order to make it so that users got to have their own choice for what they had staked. The second portion of this is, is we solved impermanent loss on Bancor by making it so that when assets diverge in price, a portion of the trading fees are put into reserve. Uh, They are put into reserve, so if a person deposits 10 ETH into Bancor, whenever people use their money to transact, they receive almost all of that transaction fee, Uh, but a small portion of it is put into the protocol, and if a person would end up in a position where, say, they only deserved five of their ETH back on a traditional market maker, like, say, Uniswap, Bancor will take from its own pools and give ETH to the user until they have their 10 ETH back. And let's say there isn't price divergence, right? Let's say that ETH remains relatively stable or that ETH and Bancor rise together. In that case, the user is entitled to, again, 100% of the ETH that they earned and all liquidity mining rewards and all trading fees earned. And right now, uh, I think the ETH APR is like 8%, just 8% a year, no risk, you don't, have to, you don't have to check it frequently, it does it for you automatically. And on version three, when, when Bancor version three comes out, the way this will happen is, is that there will be this thing called the infinity pool in which you use this atom model is very appropriate. There will be Bancor in the middle in which all assets are in a single giant pool where Bancor is in the center of it. And these other assets, the sum of all other assets on the protocol will be the other half of that liquidity. And this is a totally novel idea. This is this is completely unique to us. Uh, nobody, as far as we can tell, is even close to doing anything like this. Um, and they certainly don't have the ability to do impermanent loss protection in any capacity the way that we do.
0: Now, this impermanent loss, but I mean, we'll have to, you know, again, I'm not a math brain particularly. Um, how, yeah, what is... Um, from an insurance point of view, right? What is why can't we get a situation where too many people have had impermanent loss and are claiming at the same time and it causes problems, right? How how does how does it work that it balances uh, itself so that you don't have kind of a run on the bank equivalent?
1: Well, the the first portion of a run on a bank is that the reserves themselves are not actually there. And in Bancor, all the liquidity is Actually, there it is. the The second portion of that is uh, the assets on Bancor, the user provided assets that aren't Bancor, that are not BNT. The Ethereum, the Bitcoin, the Graph, the Chainlink, the synthetics, all of these tokens, right? Um, those assets are all one hundred percent insured by the users of the BNT token. Anytime those users who bring their assets to our protocol uh, would experience impermanent loss, we comp them and we cover them. That is the service we
0: provide. But, but and what I'm saying is how do you compensate them without, I mean, what is the potential risk of the compensation not being enough? Uh,
1: well, because the, because the protocol has assets 50-50 with whatever is provided to us by users, by definition, we always have enough to comp them 100. It's theoretically, I mean, if we if we like really push the absolute nightmare scenario. Yeah, it, let's go. It would it would drive the price of BNT down dramatically. Mark and I had a really uh in depth discussion about this at uh, Decentral Miami, and Mark's uh down all turtles all the way down answer. Mark ended up talking about how if it really came down to it. The ICO money from 2017 is ultimately what insures those users if the protocol's BNT stops being enough. Like that's why BNT has innate value and it works as an insurance product is because the 175-ish million dollars that we raised during ICO backs it innately. That's one of the reasons that other protocols aren't able to do insurance the way that Bancor does, is because the amount of funds that you would need to raise in order to have an insurance protocol is simply too large initially for anyone who isn't uh, known in the industry for producing quality things. And so right. Bancor was willing to put out, put themselves out there and be like, hey, we are trustworthy and these investors put their money in and now Bancor has this innate worth. And because it has that, we are we have the ability to say each BNT, if we really needed to, is actually backed by a specific amount of capital. Uh, the, the second portion of that is, is, okay, why can't there be a run on the bank? Remember, whenever there are trades done on Bancor, a small amount of that trade, I think it's 20% of the percentage that we charge of the fee. So if we had a, a, two-tenths, of a or two-tenths of a percent trading fee, it would be four hundredths of a percent is what is set aside by the protocol. So again, very very small. Uh, very small, industry-leading, phenomenal. Uh, That, but because there's so much trading volume, the amount of stuff set aside is substantial. The protocol just keeps it. Bancor, the company, doesn't keep it. The protocol keeps it. And the protocol wishes to do nothing with it except insure people who are on Bancor. And so this idea that uh, users will... uh, need to be compensated more than the protocol has, in the entirety of Bancor version 2.1, that's never happened. Wow. The protocol has always been able to give them out of its own reserves without minting any BNT at all, simply things that it has stockpiled on, on their behalf. Uh, and similarly, there, there are other tokenomic models portioned, but that's, but that's the short answer of it.
0: And how, how is BNT burned, by the way? I know how it's created, how is it burned?
1: BNT is not directly burned. Uh, The way that it works is, is when you stake Bancor network tokens, BNT, on Bancor network, you receive VBNT, voting tokens. These are the governance tokens of Bancor network. You cannot vote in Bancor unless you literally have your own cash in the game. Uh, So that's the way that we incentivize good voting. VBNT, in order to get your original investment of BNT, is needed. VBNT is not just the voting token, it is the receipt of deposit. So in order to get your BNT tokens out of the protocol that you bought, you need to give VBNT back. The way that Bancor is burned, uh, BNT is burned is indirectly. What happens is, is a portion of the trading fees on Bancor is used to buy VBNT from the market. There are people who are willing to sell their voting tokens for whatever reason. It's their, it's their opportunity. It's actually, uh, we can talk about that later. People can choose to sell their VBNT, and there is a VBNT versus BNT pool on Bancorp. And whenever uh, there are a specific set of events, they're not important. The point is the protocol can purchase VBNT from the market and burn it. And each VBNT burnt from the market represents BNT that is now locked in the protocol forever. It's locked there forever. There is simply no receipt to redeem to redeem that it. Right. And right now, I think it's a two and a half, two and two, two point two five percent of all uh, VBNT has been burned. Amazing! Like it's been two point three million VBNT. And in version three of Bancor because of the way that the receipts work, uh, that VBNT does not represent, that 2.3 million VBNT does not represent 2.3 million BNT. It represents at least 2.3 million BNT because the way that pool tokens work means that as a time goes on, that VBNT won't be locking one BNT. It'll be locking one and a half and then two and then five. And so as a function of time, more and more BNT will be locked in the protocol, which also serves as an insurance mechanism. So again, Bancor is one of the most complicated protocols out there because what we do is unique and the value proposition that we offer is unique. So this, I understand that this is like, this is a lot.
0: <laughs> no, no, it's okay. It's, it's, as I said, it's better, it's better we, we unpack as many things as we can and you know, bring back questions later. Um, you know, I, I hate to dumb down the space Um, Because, you know, the front face of the uh, right, you know, and and the beauty of crypto, as we said in the beginning, is it's an endless pit of research. And yet the final product is user friendly, Um, you know, and Bancor has been good at that. And and so have most of the DeFi protocols, Uh, you know, as as little mass adoption as we have. The reality is a lot of my friends who I've gotten a call with and explained Metamask and SushiSwap and Uniswap uh, within a few hours, they're pretty comfortable with it. Uh, And and that's no small feat uh, due to um, how much work has been done on the front side and on education and stuff like that. I just want to go back a little bit to insurance. If I understand correctly, um, insurance is an actuarial uh, mental masturbation project on steroids, (laughs) um, because um, essentially, you know, insurance 101 is, although it's very difficult to predict when person X will die, the more people we put into that pool, the more accurate we can uh, work out something, right? And yeah. so if I've understood correctly, the, rea- the fact that more and more coins, different kinds of coins and deeper liquidity pools are being established in Banco, um, the lower the risk actually becomes.
1: Correct. The, the This insurance risk, this run on the bank idea um, is now distributed amongst, I think uh, we have a I should know this off the top of my head. I think we have 180 whitelisted assets right now, approximately, and that uh, the total value locked is over a billion dollars, right? And this is not totally distributed evenly across all these white assets, but the bank or network token is against so many of them that the risk becomes distributed. Uh, everybody remembers this, uh, this para- uh, parabolic pump by Polygon, right? The MATIC token. Um, matic was polygon was as a token on bancor before the pump it was Um, and we're and mark talks when mark talks about this he talks about how if anything was going to break bancor it was going to be polygon because we had a bunch of people providing liquidity for for these polygon tokens on bancor and then it did like a 150x uh and we were at, at the protocol we were like worried like man is this thing gonna hurt us while we're still in this developmental stage? And no, it didn't affect anything at all. the The protocol is able to handle it completely. It didn't hurt anything at all. Everybody who staked Polygon with us was extremely happy because uh, they got all their stuff. They didn't have any risk of impermanent loss. They didn't have any of these. They didn't have any of these problems, uh, and they got paid liquidity mining rewards for having done so. Um, but that's a that's another portion of Bancor that I uh, I think is really worth talking about is what does providing your token to Bancor do like what does it do for your community so uh, imagine you are some holder of something
0: before we go there yeah so let's, let's walk people through you know because we as i said we've covered a lot already let's let's yeah. <laughs> assume that version three is now live when does it expect to go live by the way quarter one 2022. okay so we're, so, we're there now all right so i come along i've got my ethereum goes. Yeah, I come along with my Ethereum, and um, I can now do single-sided staking. I no longer have to provide both coins. I'm going to put my Ethereum into the Bancor single pool, right? Omni pool. Omni pool. I'm going to pay my one-time overpriced gas fee for the luxury for the service, but I never have to come and redeem it and replace it because it's going to automatically compound on its own. Correct. I've, so I've, I've solved the problem of auto compounding. I'd, I can just leave it there. I've solved the problem of impermanent loss because I no longer have to deal with two coins. Okay, I've solved the problem of slippage because there's a gigantic pool over there, uh, yep. even if I'm trading an esoteric coin, which is not normally would not have such a deep liquidity pool on your standard uh, structure of Two coins in a pool. I solved that problem uh, because again, it's it's all orbiting the balance uh, uh, bank or coin by itself. Great. So those three problems have now been solved. Good. So I've put my coin, and on top of it, I've been provided insurance. Is that all correct? Yeah, that's all correct. Okay. So now that we've got that, go for it.
1: Okay. So you've got all these positive things for you personally as the liquidity provider, which is very important. It is very important for there to be personal economic incentive for somebody to do something. Um, And there's two things that I wanna address. One thing you didn't talk about and one thing that you did. The the thing that you said about uh, these esoteric coins who don't have a lot of liquidity. One of the reasons these coins don't have a lot of liquidity is because whenever uh, a new company comes along and they've got their own coin, by definition, in the old model, they have to sell half of it in order to make the liquidity pool. And on Bancor, what they can do is, is they can just put 100% of their assets as available to be traded. And that's really important. By using Bancor, you almost by definition double the amount of liquidity in these pools because you don't have to get rid of half of your assets in order to do it. And that's really important for things like DAOs. Yeah. Dows don't want to sell half their tokens, right? Like Keeper Dow Rook doesn't want to sell half their tokens for something else. And so, sure enough, Keeper Dow put their treasury on Bancor, not, not just Keeper Dow, Yearn. Uh, so, Keeper Dow, Yearn, Saffron Finance. Uh, I've got, we've got a whole list of these, there's like nine of them. Of these DAOs that have moved, Nexus Mutual, WNXM, have moved substantial portions of their treasuries onto Bancor because they are smart money. You want to know what what insider training is going on on Wall Street? You can't. But everything on chain is done in a public and open way. And if you're wondering where the people who have done the most research are going, they're going to Bancor. These DAOs are like Extremely, extremely high level. And they understand that impermanent loss isn't something they want to deal with. And that by providing their capital to uh, Bancor, they can earn fees and they can help the health of their protocol. That's the second portion of this. As a person, you need to be uh, personally incentivized to provide liquidity, but also there's the community incentive. When I provide liquidity to Bancor and I allow people to make trades with my capital, I am allowing the new users an easier method to onboard into my token. I am facilitating the ability of a token to go parabolic by providing the liquidity people need to make trades. Let's take an example, a real example of synthetics, SNX token. SNX is a phenomenal project. Uh, they, they do wonderful things. I can't sing their praises enough. And they had a model which incentivized staking. You stake the SNX token on the protocol, and it is used for its use case. And uh, let's not go down the rabbit hole of what they do because they, they deal with synthetic options, and it's, it's a whole other bucket.
0: Another time.
1: <laughs> yes. And Synthetics had their, this incentive program for users to stake their, their SNX tokens on the protocol, and it worked. It worked really, really, really well. Something like high 90s percent of all SNX tokens were staked. And the idea was that because there was this product and it was useful, and because we shrunk the circulating supply of SNX so substantially, that this would cause the price to go up. And it didn't do that at all. At, At all and many protocols have done something very similar to this where the idea is is we will reduce supply circulating supply and that will cause the price to go up by this very uh, keynesian supply demand model and that is unfortunately not the case because while it is easy in that idea in that model to theoretically believe that the price will go up because of the low liquidity it is just as easy to for it to actually happen that the price will go down and then people will lose confidence in, your, in the uh, financial stability of your product. And because it's low liquidity, when it dumps, it dumps really hard and it's hard for it to come back. And that's what's ended up happening with the SNX token. Despite the total success of all of their plans, the price action never, never appreciated it in the fashion that they wanted to. And so when you provide liquidity to Bancor, you aren't just getting all of these personal incentives you are helping your own token your own community grow by facilitating new users the ability to purchase a token with a healthy liquid market
0: um and this this mentioned the side benefit of exposure i mean once it's been yeah. whitelisted it's, it's also been exposed now to an entire uh, bank or ecosystem as well yeah. um Th- there's there's also this whole other issue
1: additionally with Bancor version three of super fluid liquidity um, where not only can you stake your stuff in Bancor and Bancor will allow people to trade buy, sell with it, but also you could take your BN tokens or the protocol itself could take your, your excess synthetics tokens and stake them back in synthetics. So you're earning double rewards. Like that's, that's a real thing in V3 like uh, say um, so let, do you have any other questions before we get too deep down this? Oh, yeah,
0: I'm, before, yeah, before we go into that, let's, let's talk a yeah. little about how yield farming would now operate. Let's say, okay, so let's take our perfect example because this all started because a community member of Crown Capital DAO, which we're a play to earn gaming DAO, we've been exploring after our ICO, where should we, cre- we create our liquidity pool? And um, one of our structures is to reward people even for single-sided staking, right? Because we have underlying assets that are actually earning, we very much looked at ourselves much more akin to a traditional company and we wanted to pay dividends um, and we felt to do so with our own coin, right? So we have a finite supply, we have uh, coins coming off paid over five years and those will be rewards. And we have single staking rewards and potentially we have a liquidity pool yield farming staking reward. So let's just go the single staking route. Now, someone has put their money into the crown capital, uh, well, put their coins into the bank or protocol with their crown coins, their single-sided staking, if you will. And um, now we, Crown Capital DAO, want to incentivize those people uh, to keep holding their crown by giving them a reward. How would we practically give them those rewards while they're staking? It integrates
1: natively. It integrates natively. Uh, the actual coding mechanics of this are, I think, outside of the scope of this conversation. But, but do we Bancor, lock it in a vault? Do we, do, Bancor, do we send it to a
0: vault, a Bancor vault Yes.
1: Yes, the, the DAO would send those tokens to a place on Bancor, and Bancor would distribute those crown capital tokens to people who had deposited uh, crown capital into Bancor. And it would do so uh, for those users gaslessly. The users themselves wouldn't have to pay any gas. And they auto receive, compounding. Yup. Gasless and auto compounding because of the way that the BN, uh, in this case, you deposit crown and mm-hmm. you would receive BN crown as receipts, bank or network right. crown receipts. And because of the way that the new Omni pool works, the rewards that you're giving your users would be gasless for them. It would be auto compounding natively for them. It's just, it's the best of all worlds. Like, and Crown
0: avoids problem. having to take our money, our USDC, and putting it in, in, you know, using it, per se, locking it up uselessly, right? Because even though we yeah. earn transaction fees, Crown Capital is in the business of play to earn games. We want to own as many gaming assets as possible. And so having our dollars dollars $400,000 in USDC uh, takes us away from our core business
1: yeah, it just, you have to lock up 50% of the capital that you wish you could use. Uh, and in Bancor, Bancor version 2.1 and Bancor version 3, you don't, you don't have to do that. You get really all of the best of, of every world. Um, I, I recognize that there are problems with Bancor version 2.1, uh, excuse me, mostly gas, uh, mostly gas. What's uh, average slightly- gas at
0: now, Josh? If, if someone wanted to stake right now into a pool, what on a good day, where, where you know relative, let's speak in terms of percentage. Actually, if I were to put into a sushi swap liquidity pool versus a Bancor liquidity pool, how much higher percentage, because of as you said the complex contracts, am I going to expect?
1: One point seven five x. Okay, good. Right now, right now on Bancor, a new user staking probably runs around two hundred. Okay. It is, it is a serious pain point and it is a thing that is being very heavily addressed in Bancor version three.
0: Now, now, why is, why is it so much cheaper in Bancor version three? Is the code just better optimized?
1: Uh, it is cheaper in Bancor version three because in Bancor version two, each user has a unique position. And in order to record that position, it requires a lot of contractual lines of code. In Bancor version three, Every position is completely fungible, and mm-hmm. that means that whole section of the contract regarding unique positions is just gone. It's just straight up gone. Uh, additionally, much ado, much ado has been m- about research. Much effort has been put in towards making sure these contracts are lightweight and portable because the the dev team uh, internally and publicly has stated very much so that About six weeks after the launch of Bancor version three, we will begin to seriously consider uh, our next chain or our next layer two or our next side chain. Uh, And these contracts are meant to be light and portable. And so if you're an EVM compatible chain, Bancor is, uh, the idea is is that with these new contracts, Bancor will be very easy to migrate. Whereas with the Bancor version two contracts, it it was not really that feasible to migrate them without substantial effort.
0: I want to come back to that point, um, but just as a side point, I think, you know, for our higher, higher listeners who, who, who are trying to work out multiple uh, moving part strategies, you mentioned that, you know, I, I, was, I always say this when I'm speaking to traditional finance people, that the concept of a liquidity pool is like getting your coat hanger receipt, right? You've, you've deposited your valuable coat, yeah. uh, you know, at, at, at the function you've gone to, and you've been given back a receipt, which is its own Token and then when you come to claim back uh, you get back your coat and whatever else uh, whatever gifts were given out by by the the event party and so now you're saying you if you deposit crown you'll be getting back crown bank hall, a new coin and now you could in theory take that coin and do what with it.
1: That coin is a receipt of deposit Um, it is currently there is nothing. To do with that token, um, but it but there exists the ability for many things to be done with it. So, let's say uh, that you deposit your crown and you get BN crown. That BN crown represents the crown you deposited, and all the liquidity mining rewards from from Bancor, and all the liquidity mining rewards from third parties like the Crown DAO, and the fees earned by trading so that's really important that your one bn crown represents not just the crown you deposited but all those additional things because that means that the bn crown is better collateral than crown itself same deal with bn link or bn grt it is better collateral or even bn bnt it is better collateral than the actual underlying asset so if you were to say integrate with a place like Ave, right, and this is not an official thing, this is it's totally possible. We're well, using let an me, example. Sure. Yep. Uh, Ave, and you had like a bunch of uh, BN ETH because ETH is ETH is big, and currently Ave takes ETH. Say you had BN ETH. Ave could choose to let you deposit BN ETH into their protocol in order for you to take a loan. Because that BN ETH represents not just the ETH you deposited, but also fees, rewards, liquidity, mining incentives, etc. And that means it is better collateral than the underlying asset. Same thing with BNGRT or BNSNX.
0: And and let's just use an example where you just want 20%, a 20% loan, right? Because you you do not want to sell your house. You believe in the underlying asset that you've put into the liquidity pool, but you would like mining liquidity back so that you can, whatever, mint a new NFT project. Mm -hmm. And that becomes a possibility.
1: Yes, that totally becomes a possibility that there's an aftermarket for BN receipts. Um, There's a lovely protocol called AP Wine. um, And they do something with this idea of selling the rewards that you've earned off of staking before you've earned them. There's like a whole futures market for this. Um, so I imagine a place like AP1 would be really interested in BN tokens as both collateral and receipts and, and other things. Uh, Gaspar from AP1 is just just a brilliant dude. Um, but yes, these, these protocols can take your BN receipts. And because the BN receipts are totally fungible ERC-20s, they are integra- They are something you can integrate into pretty much any protocol in the way that you you do anything else. Like it is totally possible in theory, right? So in a traditional liquidity pool, you take your ETH and you take your, uh, I don't know, UNI token, and you put it in the LP, and you get your UNI ETH LP token back. And then if you want to get yield farming rewards, you have to take your LP receipt and put it somewhere else. And that's how you get your yield farming rewards in addition to It requires
0: more gas again. Every action requires gas. All
1: that requires gas, and it hurts, and you got to plug your nose and click the button every time because it doesn't feel good. Uh, but on Bancor, instead of needing to do any of that, you put your crown in and Crown Dow spends the gas to put all of the liquidity mining rewards into Bancor. And Bancor gaslessly distributes all of those rewards to you. It just cuts out the need for all of those things. Um, so it but also, also
0: incentivizes that initial, if you really are looking for long term, you, you really have no reason to revisit your position and rebalance it and do all the things you've had to, yeah. to do traditionally. You literally yeah, you can need. park your money in, in the equivalent of a Berkshire Hathaway transaction. And it's, you can check on it, come check on it all you want, but your single transaction is now much more palatable because yes, you paid your $80 in gas, but you've, you've only had to do it once.
1: Yeah. And you can leave it there for years and it will be optimal. It will be the optimal holding strategy for any of the whitelisted assets. I, I, I sincerely believe that. Like yeah. my portfolio certainly demonstrates that. I, I sincerely believe that it will be the optimal place for holding of any assets. And and I just really want to stress so much that when you deposit into bank or and you provide that liquidity, in addition to all these wonderful things you get for yourselves, helping your token be liquid directly contributes to price appreciation in a way that the market just doesn't really think it will currently. And the more in Bancor version 3 that DAOs move their treasuries, why are DAOs moving their treasuries? Because it's safe, they make money, and it facilitates new users. It allows the coin to go parabolically up because a small dip doesn't cause a crash, and that builds confidence in the market. It allows your tokens to have all of these extra use cases. So, yes, I-, yeah, I sure.
0: No, no, look, you. hey, you're allowed to sing, you're allowed to drink your own Kool-Aid. You've chosen to work for Bancor and it's working. And, you know, Bancor was there in the beginning. And uh, it's. It, it makes me smile that the, that the original players are still playing an important role. Um, let's go to the one last point that I needed to address is, um, you know, as much as we've, This is going to solve a lot of the gas problems and probably bring down the gas by what 70% or 60% or something 60% are our
1: current
0: right even so for our you know we like to call our a lot of our members player investors right you know we've had a lot of scholars from Axie Infinity and things and they really are only talking about a 100 bucks, and so it was important to us to consider layer two solutions like arbitrum, optimism and so on. How likely is it for Bancor to roll this entire system uh, onto a layer two as well?
1: Um, If we include Polygon into that list of Polygon Arbitrum Optimism, um, I would say that the DAO would certainly vote to move Bancor onto at least one of those. Uh, Again, the team follows the DAO and uh, I would, I would be willing to bet large sums of money that Bancor is going to be on one of those three, um, in in the next year and a half. I would be willing to bet large sums of money, uh, and, and I would imagine that if for some reason it doesn't, it's definitely going to AVAX. Uh, but again, that is all current speculation, and we will follow what the Dow votes.
0: Yeah, and and look, we we've got a vote ahead of us now as well because, um, impermanent loss has has. Been a, a prominent topic. I mean, we chose to balance Crown with USDC as potentially the best of the worst case solutions, but it is these, you know, these statistics uh, cannot be ignored. Uh, a lot of people yeah, providing is- liquidity have been hurt in the last couple of years. And uh, as these gaming tokens and stuff go through parabolic cycles and retractions and stuff, uh, the price movement uh, can knock people out.
1: Yeah, it's like uh, if sure. Yeah, if if your if your crown token does a 10x like I I pumped it I punched it into the impermanent loss calculator it's like if you've got your crown token and it does a 10x and USDC is not going anywhere you've experienced 42.5% impermanent loss that's that is substantial when you're talking about hundreds of thousands of dollars in this lp like the dow would clear i i believe the dow would clearly benefit from moving to somewhere like bancor and we've listed white listed plenty of assets and you would not be the first DAO uh there you'd be amongst a bunch of good friends who all think that uh, bancor is the right place to be and it would certainly not be the last DAO to come there because we are uh, uh NDA talks with other DAOs, and they're it's happening People are people are going to feel uh, people are going to feel it when the market starts to move into this safe location for long-term hold holding uh, and the ability to have super fluid liquidity, both providing your asset for trading and providing your asset to do to its uh, native use case.
0: Now you mentioned whitelisting. listing. Uh, let's again take our personal case as as a case point. So now we have our fantastic ICO on Copper, and then we want to create our liquidity pool on Bancor. Uh, what is that whitelist process going to look like?
1: Uh, the whitelist process would involve someone, uh, and this is one of the uh, the economic cases for BNT price appreciation. If you want to have your token whitelisted on Bancor, you need to purchase BNT, stake it to get VBNT, specifically 25,000 voting tokens. And if you have 25,000 VBNT, you can, Create a proposal to say, "Hey, we want this whitelisting." Alternatively, if you are not interest, if you are not necessarily interested in doing that, you could uh, petition the voting automaton, which is run by Mark Richardson, and say, "Hey, we would like the voting automaton to uh, make this." proposition for us. And as long as the token is secure, it doesn't have a rebase mechanism because rebase mechanisms really hurt the ability for What's that mean loss. by
0: the way? Elaborate on
1: that please. Uh a rebase mechanism is like a, is like a stock split. Okay. If you if you just like 10 to 1 everything. It really messes with like the internal math we we it's not to right. facilitate. Right. Well, let's take
0: our coin for example because it's a very yeah. simple one. There's a finite supply of 100 million. 75% is sitting in a staking vault re- slow released over 5 years. And the active supply around will be 25%, which is held by the ICO people uh, and the pre-seed at 15, you know, 15 million, 15%. And the, 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 the remainder is held by the Dow treasury.
1: Yeah. So there's a very standard, uh, standard proposal for whitelisting because we like having lots of assets because the more we have, the more we're diversified against risk. Uh, And it's just, do you have a rebase mechanism? So you guys don't, we've got a limited supply. There's no apparent security risks. You follow the standard ERC-20 token. And typically we whitelist things like that with about 100,000 BNT, which is about 220,000 USD right now, 250,000 USD right now for the protocol to then provide liquidity against. Uh, But there have been a couple of cases where uh, we do that and the DAOs don't get in. Their, their users beat them to the punch. Their users actually deposit before the, the DAO can uh, because they find the service so valuable. And then the, the DAOs come back and they're like, hey, this happened like just a couple of days ago with Nexus Mutual, WNXM. They came back and they were like, hey, will you please increase the co-investment of, w, uh, of BNT so we can deposit 10 million more WNXM into the protocol. And WNXM is like 35 bucks a token, uh, and they're going to be increasing the, uh, the ability for WNXM to be deposited by the DAO in 1 million increments until WNXM gets as much in there as they want. Uh, and that's currently up on Snapshot, and it looks like it's going to pass with 4.4 uh, million votes to zero because <laughs> uh, everybody likes the idea. So yeah, there's, there's a, a very open community who's very interested in facilitating uh, tokens and getting them liquid. And uh, I imagine it would not be very difficult with something like uh, Crown, Crown Gaming.
0: Super. Um, have, I think we've touched on everything. Is there anything that you think is important that we haven't yet spoken about? I think
1: we've, I think we've hit all the major points. It's, uh, it is such a complex space and all of Bancor version 3's features. Oh, there is, there is one more thing I want to talk about. It's the, it's the last problem with Bancor version 2, uh, version 2.1. Right now, Bancor suffers from a popularity problem. Uh, There is limited space in the pools, uh, such that right now, Chainlink, uh, the Chainlink community loves us. They deposit uh, 85% of all DEX liquidity for Chainlink is on Bancor. But it is so popular on Bancor that the pool is full. Uh, It's not closed, but it's full. We don't have the, we're not going to increase the co-investment currently right now because Bancor version three is about to come out amongst other things. But there is this issue where pools can fill up so that there's no space left for, for investors Um, because it's just, it's too popular. It's a, it's a suffocating from success kind of issue in Bancor version three. Not only are all pools in like this kind of atom model where Bancor center and everything else is in this cloud around it, but they will also be infinite there will be infinite staking of assets. So there will be no cap. This case of- you know, Why is that
0: possible? What changed to make that possible, Joshua? Uh,
1: sufficient liquidity in Bancor version two uh, with the BNT token changes to the code base, uh, to the way that the minting process works and changes to the way that uh, additional capital is handled inside of version three. We uh, talked a little bit about superfluid staking earlier, this idea that you can put your capital into Bancor and then Bancor can take it and put it into its native use case and you earn fees on both. Um, That is a thing that we will do if there is say too much liquidity in Bancor. So say we get like another $400 million in link, right? And link staking eventually comes out. The Dow vote, could be such that we say, hey, let's take all this link that isn't really used frequently for liquid markets, and let's stake that on a trustworthy node so that everybody in the link pool will earn trade fees, liquidity mining rewards, facilitate the use of, on, of new users, and they'll earn the rewards from node chain link staking. And this idea that you can have your best of both worlds is, is superfluid liquidity, and there will be no cap in version three for what users can deposit the the protocol will will take all of it it's not actually infinite uh but it is fun it is functionally it, infinite yes yeah. right now the amount of capital that we could take in is like almost triple the the market cap of all of crypto so Wonderful. like yeah and that's and that's like the last major feature is you don't have to worry about this issue of running out of space when you're white-listed, Put as much of your token in there. We're happy to have you. No repetitioning the DAO.
0: That and that also helps the market give an honest pricing on, on a coin, right? Yeah. Because uh, you know when you've got fighting for limited space, uh, that is a a market fluctuating factor that uh, is not a fair representation of supply and demand.
1: Yeah, it uh, it makes it so that there's like this uh, artificial reduction in the ability for the protocol to move, despite that there's more popularity. As evinced by everyone trying to get into the pool, and uh, yeah, it's just it's just one more thing that Bancor version three just this totally this totally fixes. I, yeah, I mean, I really there's so many that.
0: there are so many things we raised today that I'm going to go and do a deep dive on. I mean, I'm a a yeah. diehard libertarian, borderline anarcho capitalist, and so <laughs> any of these kind of free market metrics that give true representation um, of the state of the market. Um, and a fair ability for everyone to come and go uh, really excites me um, and is so definitely the future. Um, well, look, we've we've gone through things that are above my pay grade here. I mean, uh, thank you so much for taking the time to explain them to me. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and, you know, we haven't even talked about things like oracles. We would have to save that for another time. Uh, a question I like to ask everyone is, uh, because I, I get to find new things to go and look into, what in the crypto or NFT space, are you so excited about right now? You can give me a few things if you want, but the single item that you're most excited about right now.
1: Oh, I'm ND8. I can't say it. Um, there is going to be something with Bancor soon that I am uh, that I'm very excited about, and that's that's the one.
0: Okay, uh, and, and non- non-Bancor, non-Bancor related.
1: related, and non-Bank. Well, it's not really what you would think of as for Bancor. It's a it's a new it's a kind of a new thing. Uh, but non-Bancor related right now, the thing that I am uh, most excited about is uh, Avalanche, Avalanche's subnets. Um, Avalanche's subnets, the ability to create kind of uh, very specific environments with different non-AVAX gas needs. or It's all, it's all just so fascinating. Avalanche and the Federated the, the Byzantine uh, Generals problem. Uh, th- that's the technical name for like one of the old information systems problems in math uh, really, really got me into the crypto space and seeing that problem, like be solved in real time in my lifetime has been just, just a wonderful thing. And so I'm really excited about that.
0: Wonderful. Well, thank you again so much for joining me. I'm sure I'll have a lot of follow-up questions for you and, uh, maybe we'll have to do a second part to this. Thank you so much. I'd love
1: to come back. Thank you for your time.